Tonight on The Readout. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, a jury of his peers determines that he is indeed a sexual predator. The nine jurors deliberating for just three hours before their historic decision in favor of E. Jean Carroll on most counts, including sexual abuse and defamation. Plus, breaking news, the law is finally catching up to the most dishonest member of Congress. NBC News has learned that Republican Congressman George Santos is now facing criminal charges from the Justice Department. But we begin the readout tonight with another historic first for Donald Trump. Not only was Trump the first twice impeached president, not only is he the first former president to be indicted, but as of tonight, he is now the first former president to be found liable for sexual abuse. That was the decision of the jury in the rape and defamation civil suit brought against Trump by writer E. Jean Carroll. In addition to finding him liable for sexual abuse and the injuries that came with it, the nine-member jury found him liable for defaming Carol after she made her allegations public and doing so with actual malice. That liability comes with a price tag of $5 million. It took the jury less than three hours to come to that decision following a two-week trial where Trump was notably a no-show. After it was read in the courtroom, each juror confirmed that the decision was indeed unanimous. Carol and her attorney, Roberta Kaplan, did not take questions outside the court today. But Kaplan said, we are very happy. At about the same time, Trump posted on his Twitter knockoff, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Carol later released a statement that in part read, I filed this lawsuit against Donald Trump to clear my name and to get my life back. Today, the world finally knows the truth. This victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed. For Trump, this is just the start of what could be a very rough summer on the legal front. He's still facing the hush money case brought by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. There's the ongoing civil lawsuit by New York Attorney General Letitia James, alleging widespread fraud by Trump and his company. There's Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation into Trump's meddling in the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. And, of course, the two special counsel investigations into January 6th and into Trump's mishandling of classified documents. Joining me now is MSNBC producer and reporter Adam Reese, who was in the courtroom today as the verdict was read. Also, Cynthia Oxney, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion. Adam, I'm going to go to you first. Um, you were in the courtroom. Talk about the scene when the jury was read. What were the reactions of all involved? It was a bit of a shocker how soon it came, Joy, but apparently there wasn't much to discuss. The evidence was overwhelming. In fact, during jury—actually, during closing arguments, two of the jurors were actually dozing off. One of them had his head uh, actually in his chest. One of the attorneys told me a sleeping juror is a convicted juror. The evidence was really damning and overwhelming against Mr. Trump. You had the Access Hollywood tape. Everyone has seen that. You had the deposition where he thinks he's seeing Marla, but it's really Eugene. He says, she's not my type. He says, fortunately or unfortunately, 
Again, it was just incredibly damning. He didn't show up for the trial. He didn't sit at the defense table. He didn't sit at the witness stand. And in fact, maybe the jurors were actually insulted by that. You had the two prior bad act witnesses, the one woman who claimed she was sexually assaulted on a plane years ago, another reporter for People magazine who claims she was sexually assaulted at Mar-a-Lago when she went to interview Trump and Melania Trump uh, for a one-year anniversary piece. The Evidence just kept coming and coming and coming. Uh, Roberta Kaplan, the attorney for Eugene Carroll, really laid out her case uh, precisely right. They were lucky on the jury instructions. They were lucky on the verdict form. It worked in their favor. On the way out, both sides spoke. There was a short comment from Roberta Kaplan. She said, we're very happy. Then afterwards, uh, both Roberta and Eugene Carroll spoke. Eugene said this is a victory for all women, all women who have been sexually assaulted and have not heard, had their voices, she finally gets her voice back. That was, she said she wasn't doing it for the money. She just wanted to get her reputation back. And she says now she has that, she can move forward. Uh, for Mr. Trump's part, uh, Mr. Takapina, who has avoided us all throughout the trial, he spoke to us uh, afterwards. He said um, that obviously they're not happy. They will appeal uh, on several grounds. They felt that the Access Hollywood tape should not have been admitted. They felt anonymous jurors should not have been allowed. He has uh, defended many mobsters. And even those trials, at least the attorneys know who the jurors are. And that was not true in this case. The nine jurors, six men, three women, they were hustled out as they had been brought in and left every day. They're anonymous. They may remain anonymous. And this was a huge victory for Eugene Carroll and a devastating loss for Mr. Trump. Joy. Uh, Adam, could you see the jurors? I mean, are they anonymous in the sense that you couldn't visibly see them when they were sitting there? No, I, uh, we could see them. Okay. Uh, it was a mixed race jury. Uh, again, six men, three women. Uh, there were times, um, for instance, when she took the stand, when E. Jean Carroll took the stand, they were focused on her. During cross-examination, they stayed focused on her. They never looked at Mr. Takapina uh, during cross. And again, I want to say that Roberta Kaplan, the plaintiff's attorney, E. Jean Carroll's attorney, laid out this case precisely the way it should be, and they got a big victory. Uh, Cynthia, let me go to you. Uh, were you surprised at how quickly this came back? I was surprised. You know, I tried a lot of sex crimes cases. They can be very difficult. Even um, when you think you have overwhelming evidence, they take a while to hash out. I mean, there are some ugly discussions that have to happen in that yeah. jury room. I was surprised and pleasantly surprised we're, because I think yeah. victims really need it. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, in this post-Roe world, when women are under assault. There are all these women out there who have been assaulted and they just needed somebody to say, we think we're going to believe you. Your fellow Americans are going to believe you. So I'm happy for E. Jean Carroll. I know she doesn't care about the money, yeah. but I think it's really a more important verdict for all the women out there who are suffering and are um, still part of the quiet generation and need some validation. And, and you said the quiet generation. Do you think it's important that this is a woman who is in her 70s? For her generation of women, they weren't, they didn't have a Me Too movement, right? And right. When she was of the age when this was um, happening to her. Do you think it's important that someone of this generation is who came forward so many years later and was believed by the jury? You know what I think it was? It was like jumping back in time, though, because yeah. Joe Tacopina took a playbook from her generation to attack her. Yeah. You didn't scream. You didn't go to the police. You didn't go to that. And I think we've had a, a really national discussion about, no, women don't scream. 
when they're having somebody stuff their fingers up inside their body when they don't want it. No, women don't go to the police. No, And and this woman, Joe Tacopina, proved every reason why they don't go to yeah. the police, because they're abused in the public. And Trump proved that as well. So it's opened up a discussion that's is exciting for me as somebody who's tried a lot of sex crimes cases, and I want victims to feel empowered. I think it's been very good. It's going to be very difficult for lawyers after this, or it's more difficult for them to try to use this playbook from the 70s. And, and this, one of the things that did surprise me, I mean, this is a jury with mostly men. It was six men uh, and three women. The women were 55, 62, and 64 years of age. They were getting closer to the age of the victim here. The men were 26, 31, 37, 46, 60, and one of unknown age. A jury of twice as many men as women found him guilty. Did that surprise you? Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, classically, um, men are better jurors in rape cases, I'm sad to tell you. Yeah. I do think that's changing. It is, it is illegal and improper for a prosecutor to strike a person based on their gender. Sure. Um, and I grew up in that world, and I took that very seriously. But it is also true that in the past— you know, in the long ago past, sure. in the early E. Jean Carroll years, you know, when we're stepping back in that time, women were tougher. But I do think that's something that has changed over yeah. time, and I feel good about that as well. well. One more question I want to ask you about the actual, I guess when the first reading came out, because we were all waiting for Adam to post <laughs> each of these things, and so he's posting it, we're all staring at the Google Docs. We're all staring at the Google waiting to see what Adam was going to post. He had yeah. all of the power today in uh, his hands. Um, and, and one of the things that did, when I saw it, no. Your first thing you typed was no, Adam. And I was a little bit like, okay. So they said no on the actual rape charge. Well, these are the three uh, op- the three things that they had to deal with. So there's there's the rape charge, which everybody kind of, I think, understands that was forced sex, um, you know, that, that was unwanted. Um, to find abuse, the jurors needed to believe that Trump subjected Ms. Carroll to sexual contact by physical force, um, touching the sexual or other intimate parts of another person. And then forcible touching was the third option, which was squeezing, grabbing, pinching, rubbing, or other bodily contact involving the application of some level of pressure um, to the sexual intimate parts. Are you surprised that the one that they chose of the three options was sexual abuse? No, and and I'll, it, it, what's, what's beautiful about this is why I love juries. They listen very carefully. Yeah. And what they know is when E. Jean Carroll went to her first outcry witness, the woman said to her, E. Jean Carroll, that's rape. And yeah. this was something that outcry witness said to her. Yeah. And so they're there were, they were very discriminating about the evidence. And not only does that hearten me that they're listening, it also protects the case on appeal that they have made that discriminating uh, a judgment. So yeah. it's all good. Uh, Tim, let me bring you in here. Um, you have uh, dealt with Donald Trump in court, uh, in which you, you won the day in terms of him lying to you uh, in a deposition or not being honest in a deposition. Were you surprised by the verdict? And can you sort of have your mind wander into Donald Trump's and wonder how he is he really reacting to it. We know he reacted on his his pretend social media. I was I was heartened by the verdict, Joy. I, you know, I, I didn't know which way it would go. I was heartened by the direction it took, you know, to follow up on Cynthia's very eloquent, you know, explanation of the importance of this case. One of the other elements of it that I think is really important is that New York State temporarily opened a window that allowed the statute of limitations to be lifted on cases such as E. Jean Carroll. And for women who've been sexually assaulted and or raped, uh, it often takes them years to come to terms with their trauma, the offense itself, and just kind of work up the courage to take on their abusers or their attackers. 
And 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 I think that's another re- important result for this from this case for women across the country. And yeah. we can hope that the courts continue to evolve in this direction. For Trump, does he feel ashamed? Absolutely not. People who are narcissistic and have damaged psyches don't feel shame. Um, he is going to be humbled by it because he doesn't like to be a loser. And he just yeah. got beaten by two women leading a case that put him in the loser category. Um, he's also, for any of the other lawyers defending him in the Georgia case, the New York cases, or anything that comes out of the Justice Department, it is a reminder that this guy is a time bomb in a deposition. He is the worst client you could imaginably have because he is a a serial fabulist. He lies at will. He exaggerates. He is thin-skinned. He wants to be the center of attention. And you combine all those things in one person, as they do in Donald Trump, and you have a nightmare client. And yeah. that's, I think, ultimately why he didn't testify in court. And yeah. this is going to be very frightening, I think, to lawyers who are representing him in other cases in which he's going to be, I think, put under oath. Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, I, I don't think that's why he didn't testify. Like, I, don't think, I don't think it was because his lawyer said, you, you know, you're not a good client. He is a coward. That's why. He's a bully. He's the kind of a person who, who has a lot to say when he's sitting in his little fancy golf course, but he does not have the guts to show up and actually face his accuser. And that's why he played that game, saying, I'm coming back to face her. And then he didn't have the guts to show up. Yeah. And and the judge outsmarted him. And so, I mean, Tim knows him better than anybody in America, but I know a I know a coward when I see one. Let me play because he didn't testify and yet he kind of did because he gave this deposition that I watched it and was like, this guy's convicted himself. If this was a criminal trial, he testified against himself. Let's play probably the worst part of it. And this is uh, Roberta Kaplan, who's a great lawyer, uh, clearly, uh, questioning Donald Trump. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star. I think you can say that, yeah. Both Cynthia and then Tim. That was damning. <laughs> I mean, not only was that damning, but but um, my favorite damning beyond the fortunately or unfortunately was when he was caught with I, wrongly identifying <laughs> E. Jean Carroll, and then when his lawyer improperly helped him out. I can't believe yeah. she did that. She should be sanctioned from that. That's totally improper. Then... He, he says, oh, the, well, the photograph is blurry. Yeah, the photograph is not blurry. <laughs> and then we have the photograph. And like, we, we have the photograph. It is not blurry. So right in, when, you, when you're taking a deposition, you're saying to the jury, this is my testimony. I'm talking to you, jury. I'm talking to you. Oh, and I'm lying to you. Right. That's what he did. I'm lying to you to the yeah, jury. It's got to be insulting. But before I go to you, Tim, uh, Adam, what was the, you, what was the reaction uh, of the jurors to that? Did they have a reaction as that video, as that tape was being played? Oh, like you said, it's a confession. It's so damning. I mean, they just watched these tape. I mean, it wasn't just that moment in the tape. It was one after another after another. Fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, 
It's just everybody was in shock. I just want to mention one other thing quickly. Everybody, I mean, Takapina put his arms up. He said, you know what I'm dealing with? The judge today said he wouldn't do anything about Trump's uh, post today on True Social. Just as they're about to go into the jury room, he posts. And it was a big moment. Roberta Kaplan brought it up just before they're about to go in. And the judge says, threw up his arms. I'm not going to do anything. So that's yeah. what you were dealing with. And, you know, Tim, for Takapina, you know, he didn't have a really strong hand to play. His client is not an honest person. <laughs> his client <laughs> says he's not going to testify. He says, oh, my client's not going to testify. Then Trump is overseas saying, oh, I'm coming back to face my accusers. What does this uh, sort of uh, bode for his future cases? Because he isn't a client that want, that can be managed, and he isn't a client that knows how to tell the truth and not damn himself by talking when he does. He's also a client who doesn't pay his legal bill. And, and so that's also <laughs> one... You know, that's one reason that he's often not drawn the top tier of legal representation Fair. in court, because people know sometimes you do all this hard work and you get a little bit of TV publicity, but you don't get your bills paid. Um, <laughs> I think that Takapina is well matched to Trump because they both approach this like blunt force instruments, not as I think um, surgical uh, observers of the law. And Robbie Kaplan schooled both of them. She is a top-tier litigator. She filleted Donald Trump in that deposition. And, and if you translated some of his answers into just short synopses of what he is saying, including the one in which he was talking about grabbing women by the genitals, you know, a, a reduction of what he said would simply be millions of years, cavemen like me have been able to assault women, and maybe that's a good thing. That's a nuts thing to put on tape. And I think it undermined his case and she drew it out of him. I knew, I think she knew exactly what she was doing. And, and I think E. Jean Carroll was brave and Robbie yeah. Kaplan is a great litigator and it was good that they were together. I agree. I would boil it down to something even simpler. His, the synopsis <laughs> of his uh, deposition was, yeah, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> And Adam Reese. And I liked it. Yeah, I did it. Uh, Adam Reese. <laughs> and I'm not sorry. Cynthia Oxney. There you go. And Tim O'Brien, thank you all very much. We have much more on the historic Trump verdict coming up. But first, the day's other major breaking news. Serial fabricator George Santos is expected to appear in court tomorrow to face undisclosed federal charges. What we know so far when the readout continues. More breaking legal news today involving another scandal-plagued Republican politician, Congressman George Santos. NBC News can now confirm that the Justice Department has charged Congressman Santos with federal offenses. He's expected to appear in court tomorrow. It is unclear still what those charges are exactly, but we do know that prosecutors have been looking into his finances, including potential irregularities involving financial disclosures and loans he made to his congressional campaign. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Richie Torres of New York, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, professor at Georgetown School of Law, and an MSNBC legal analyst. I will start with you, Paul. Speculate for us. What do you think these charges could be? So campaign financing, false statements. Unlike Donald Trump with Santos, it was always a question of when he was going to be indicted, right. not if. We know, that in, we know that in January, 
Justice Department reached out to the Federal Election Commission, which was doing a civil investigation. Justice said, we want this case. Criminal cases come first. So this was expected. Mm -hmm. The smoking gun is $700,000 alone that Santos gave his campaign. This is not a rich dude. Where did he get this money? Did he accurately reflect how it was spent on his forms. Those forms, Joy, are signed under penalty of perjury. So this is an easy case. So, and there is this this piece here, which is a a New York Times piece, about $365,000 failure to account for that money in terms of spending. So he was not filling out the form saying, this is what I'm spending the money on. So that could be part of it. Well, prosecutors, they follow the money and they in Santos' case, follow the lies. And l- let me ask you this: So, so Santos claimed when an associated when when a, when a reporter asked him about the charges, he claimed he was finding out from them, from an Associated Press reporter. Does that sound likely to you as a former prosecutor? It, it sounds like another one of his lies. Actually, yeah. you never know. But I worked in the same section that is indicted that uh, uh, presented to the grand jury the indictment yeah. of Santos, and in that section. People are summoned, as Trump was, to the uh, criminal court in Manhattan, which yeah. means that their lawyer is told that they are going to be charged yeah. and they're allowed to come in and surrender. Yeah, it's not possible that, they, that he found oh, I found it in the news. Just not possible. Extremely unlikely. But it's Santos, so we know he's not exactly the most honest guy. Congressman, let me bring you in here. You have called for Santos to resign. What is your reaction to this news? Well, for me, the long overdue prosecution of George Santos confirms what we've long known. That Mr. Santos is a pathological liar and lawbreaker who defrauded his way into the United States Congress and should be held accountable. But for me, there are only two morally acceptable outcomes. Either Santos resigns or House Republicans summon the courage to finally expel him in Congress. Like Republicans have a choice here. Either you're enabling the corruption of George Santos or you're expelling it from the United States Congress and recognizing that he's a deep rock at the core of Congress as an institution. What do you think the likelihood of that is? You know, in January, when he was asked, Kevin McCarthy said he was elected. That's not my place to do anything about it. He was not uh, too sanguine about uh, expelling him at that time. Let me play what you said, what he just said within the last hour. Here is Kevin McCarthy. So I think in America, you're innocent until proven guilty. But what, what we've watched in past behavior here, too, when there was another member indicted, I removed committee. I never put Santos on any committee. That member did get not just indicted, but was found guilty. I told him he had to resign. I would keep that same with any member here, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. But he, but he is on committees, isn't he? Isn't, isn't Congressman on the banking and another committee? Well, 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 Speaker McCarthy appointed George Santos to two committees before removing him. So the statement is only partly true. But keep in mind that George Santos was the decisive vote in the Republican bill to default on America. He was the decisive vote. And so even though Republicans ran on a platform of draining the swamp, Republicans refused to drain the greatest swamp of them all, which is the corruption of George Santos. The reality is that Kevin McCarthy needs every vote that he can get, and he needs George Santos to remain in his in power and sabotage the full faith and credit of the United States. Well, let me come back to you, Paul, because that, that seems likely to me. It doesn't seem likely that he will be forcibly expelled and perhaps a, a prosecution will, will remove him on his own. But let's go through some of the things. Just to be clear, it is not illegal to lie about where you went to school, right? No. Okay, so he lied about where he went to school. He went to Horseman, not true. Graduated Brew College, not true. Attended NYU, not true. Um, it's not lie. It's not illegal to lie about where you used to work. Citibank, Goldman Sachs, not, not illegal. <laughs> 
not illegal. Lying about your faith, said he was Jewish, not true, <laughs> right? His charity's not true. Um, but then you get to these other things where you're actually raising money. You know, he said his mother died in 9-11. No, no, she did not. And those things are not true. And then he had a friends of the pets thing, not, not real. Um, where do the lies from a politician like him become crimes? Uh, when you lie to the FBI, uh, when you sign statements saying that everything that you've written on the statement is accurate and you know that that's a lie, then in addition to being a lie, that's a, a federal crime. And it's true, as you spoke with, uh, with the congressman about, that there's no congressional bar uh, to serving as a congressperson right. if you've been convicted of a crime. The rule is that if you are convicted of a crime and the punishment carries more than two years in prison, right. you can't vote on the floor, okay. you can't vote in committee, but you can do other congressional responsibilities. So the same way that Donald Trump could theoretically run from president from Rikers, this guy could be an indicted criminal, even convicted and still serve. That's exactly right. Congressman Torres, your thoughts on this? Because as you said, Kevin McCarthy is desperate for these votes. He serves at the narrowest majority. But even though it's the same majority, you know, that Speaker Pelosi had, he ain't Speaker Pelosi. He doesn't know how to run his caucus like she ran hers. What is the likelihood in your mind that because he needs this vote, he will let him stay in office while, in theory, he is on trial. Look, I, I would never bet on the integrity of the Republican Party, which has a high tolerance for scandal and corruption and criminality. And George Santos, to me, is not an accident. He's an outgrowth of a broken Republican Party whose standard bearer is Donald Trump, who on the same day was found liable for sexual assault. So the modern Republican Party is an endless stream of scandal, and I have no confidence in the ability of the Republican Party to hold George Santos accountable at all. And what, I mean, how odd would it be for you? I mean, there it, we are literally looking at the possibility that Donald Trump could theoretically get indicted either in Georgia um, or at the federal level, um, you know, for the Jack Smith investigation, and that you could have the pivotal swing vote or the pivotal vote for Kevin McCarthy in the House and the standard bearer of the Republican Party, both facing criminal indictment. Uh, do any of the people on the other side of the aisle ever say to you that they understand how crazy that is? Look, the majority of Republicans want nothing to do with George Santos. Everyone acknowledges that he's corrupt and radioactive and has no business being in Congress. But the so-called reasonable Republicans live in fear of the extremes and refuse to hold George Santos accountable. And so as far as I'm concerned, those Republicans who are turning a blind eye to the corruption of George Santos, who are denying the voters of New York Three the representation they deserve, are complicit in defrauding the voters of the United States. That's how I view it. Uh, Congressman Richie Torres uh, of New York, thank you very much. Paul Butler, don't make any plans for the next couple of days because this is just going to keep on getting spicier and spicier. Thank you. Up next, more on today's historic verdict. The big question now is how will Trump's Christian and evangelical supporters feel about voting to put a verified sexual abuser back in the Oval Office? We'll be back. We are back with the news that former President Donald Trump was found liable for sexually abusing and defaming E. Jean Carroll. This is the first time that a former president has been found liable for these types of allegations. It is unprecedented. And yet, it is happening as he is asking the American people for a second shot at the presidency. 
Right now, Trump is the Republican standard bearer and the front runner. Just think about that. A man who was found liable by nine jurors of sexual abuse and actual malice is the man to be. Here's what Republicans are hearing and saying about the verdict. Any other uh, candidate faced with this type of verdict uh, would likely never be seen again. I think it has a cumulative effect, and, and people are going to have to decide whether, they, whether or not they want to deal with all the drama that, that's going to surround it. To roll the dice on nominating somebody with this, these kinds of difficulties and baggage, I, I just can't see it. Regardless of what you think about him as an individual, uh, to me, electability is the is the sole criterion. You don't think that Trump could be elected president again? I don't think so. In a town hall tomorrow, CNN will have an opportunity to ask voters and the former president if they care. It is an open question whether or not they actually will. Joining me now is David Pluff, former Obama campaign manager and MSNBC political analyst, and Douglas Brinkley, presidential historian and professor of history at Rice University. Thank you both for being here. Douglas, I do want to start with you because this is a historic moment. I mean, there have been presidents who've been alleged to have committed um, sexual offenses before. I mean, even even old Grover Cleveland um, had a case that was thought to just be an illegitimate child, but then later historians discovered that that 1871 uh, case was actually an alleged rape. Um, and of course, there was the situations with Bill Clinton. You could go on. But this is the first time that you've had a jury actually say, yes, this man is a, a person who committed sexual abuse. What, what does that mean in your view historically? Well, this will be in the first uh, paragraph of Donald Trump's obituary. I mean, this man is a sexual predator. He committed sexual assault. The jury wasn't nine women uh, angry at Donald Trump. It was six men in the jury, and they they deliberated quickly. The evidence was overwhelming. Um, and so this is a landmark moment. I think it's a, a history. We'll look at the Adult Survivors Act uh, and, you know, that opening for women like E. Jean Carroll to come forward and um, and get some me- bit of justice, not just the five million dollars monetary um, settlement, but the fact that she has her name cleared and hopefully Joy, she gets her column back. You know, she was mm-hmm. a major columnist from 1993 until uh, 2019 for Elle. And uh, maybe now she comes back at 79 years old and talks about the Me Too generation and how women can confront sexual predators in uh, various ways and tactics. Um, in in uh, and It's scary because this guy, Donald Trump, is running for president again. You know, and it's and I think it's so important that you said that. And Cynthia Oxley, Oxley was was leaving the set uh, in their last uh, uh, segment when she was on. You know, she was making the point that you know for women this is such an important verdict because it means that women will feel that they can be believed. And there are women who are in their seventies and also women in their twenties that are dealing with this, and it's it's frightening. But you know, let me bring you in, David, because the, the thing about Donald Trump that's unique among everyone who's run for four is that this is just one of twenty six women who have accused him of some level of sexual abuse, including rape. This is somebody who seems to be not just a one-timer, but a sex pest, right, in multiple times. And we're living in this era where Roe is gone, where you have two of nine Supreme Court justices who've also been accused of predatory sexual activity. They're deciding whether we can have abortions. What is going on politically here inside of the Republican Party, and how do you think they're going to deal with it? Well, Joy, I hate to reduce to politics, but I, I do think that as I think about the election where he is right now the front runner, long way to go, 
I don't think there's a single, you know, swing voter out there is going to be more likely to vote for Donald Trump. I think this will add to the baggage uh, that he's carrying, uh, much of it very, very serious and unprecedented. But I think with the Republican primary voters, I mean, I think there's probably 30 to 40 percent of them that would really like to choose somebody else, maybe even a little bit more than that, because they don't think he can win. Not that they think his behavior is all that awful. That's really the terrible thing about this. People don't really condemn his behavior. Uh, they'll just condemn the fact, well, this makes him unelectable. So I think this probably strengthens him in the near term, because I think for a lot of Republican primary voters, uh, they they cannot believe that Donald Trump has ever done anything bad. It's all unfair. It's all rigged. Um, but I do think that, you know, as you look at next year, where we may have a pretty challenging economy and a Democratic incumbent president asking to be reelected with the challenging economy, it is all that baggage that Trump carries uh, that probably gives, I think, Biden a slight advantage in that matchup. Uh, and the other thing about it is, you know, basically you've got there's no age differential between Biden and Trump. You've got two old guys running. Right. And one has now been convicted of basically sexual assault. He's got all these other allegations. Uh, he's been twice indicted, twice impeached. Uh, and people are kind of tired of the act. So uh, that's what's fascinating about this going forward. But I, I do think at the end of the day, something fundamentally it's imagine, Joy, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, the Republican Party, the party of faith, of family values would not just support this guy, but hoist him up. I mean, I think for a lot of Republicans, he is the most important Republican president and the most uh, significant in their lifetime. You know, more than Lincoln, more than Reagan, it's Donald Trump. And that tells you how rotten to the core the whole enterprise has become. You know, Douglas, I, I, I do think about that. I mean, I think I can't think of a president who, you know, if, if, if this had been a Juanita Broderick and Bill Clinton before the, his second term came up and he had been he'd gone to court and lost such a case, the Democratic Party would have run him out of town. I mean, even, you know, I mentioned Grover Cleveland, you know, Mama, where's my pa? You know, that whole he was ridiculed for this idea. Thomas Jefferson, who was raping a 14 year old girl and had what nine children with Sally Hemings and had her in a in a in a, in a dungeon below his bedroom. But at the time, it was a tremendous scandal. I, I, you know, I can't think of a person in the, at least in the modern political era, who could survive this kind of onslaught of bad things that they've allegedly done. What does it say about the, you know, the state of, of the country, of the party, that Donald Trump seems to be actually thriving the more bad things he's accused of? Well, you know, one of the things uh, from the beginning, Donald Trump has, has kind of marketed himself as a misogynist. Uh, I mean, he was somebody who was, you know, uh, doing beauty pageants and somebody who was uh, objectifying women. He famously went on Howard Stern's radio show and said, my Vietnam was, you know, sleeping with with so many women. I didn't want to get gonorrhea or venereal disease. And he says all this kind of stuff. And um, and so he, he's been toxic on the issue of women, the way he treated Hillary Clinton when he ran against her, demeaned her. But the fact is, he got three Supreme Court justices in and those uh, conservative justices are the ones that have unraveled Roe v. Wade and are, are turning women's rights backwards. So hopefully what this E. Jean Carroll victory um, and, and will uh, will empower women to speak up and, and go further and demand their uh, human rights and equal rights in a very loud way that's heard at the ballot boxes, that this is finally becomes really the year where the women votes matter in a huge way. And uh, I think what happened with um, E. Jean Carroll is another uh, dent in Trump's armor because he's not operating in the madman 
era anymore. He's operating in the era of the Me Too movement, and he just caught his comeuppance by uh, a, a nine to one jury verdict in New York. You know, it's interesting. Um, or nine to nothing. I mean, it was a unanimous. It had to be nothing. unanimous. Right. In order. Right. Indeed. And, you know, David, I do wonder that because the Access Hollywood video came out when there was still a Roe v. Wade, when you didn't have this just absolute rage among women, even in places like Kansas, um, about the withdrawal of a right that women had, you know, most women had grown up with their entire lives or in E. Jean Carroll's case, got in their 20s and it's gone. Do you think that this hits differently in a post Roe era? And is it worthwhile, you know, women, women's votes are malleable, depending on whether you're talking about women who are white or women who are not white, right? Does this, does, is, it, is it worth leaning into what this says to older women, particularly older white women who are like E. Jean Carroll, um, for Democrats to lean into it, given that Roe is gone? Well, it's clearly going to be one of the core arguments. If he's the Republican nominee, and again, we have a long way to go till then, you know, do you want a convicted sexual abuser as your president? By the way, who's most responsible to Douglas's point about the three Supreme Court justices for the erosion of women's health care rights of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Donald Trump. OK, yeah. you got to lay that on his up in many respects. We saw how powerful that was in 22. But the person responsible wasn't on the ballot at the top of the ticket. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I think he carries enormous baggage, personal behavior, some of the policies that supported how devastating they've been to women. Uh, and I would argue all people in this country. And do people want to return to that? Um, you know, do we want him to appoint one or two more Supreme Court justices? I mean, so so at the end of the day, that's where you hear the cornins of the world. You know, they don't think he can win. But right now, you know, someone's got to take the throne away from him. Uh, and the governor of Florida is kind of, you know, uh, sputtering around. I still think he's got one or two lives left. It's still very, very early. So I think there, even with the Republican primary voters, there's enough people to say Donald Trump is my favorite politician of all time, but he can't win. Kind of give him the gold watch and, and go with somebody else. But someone's got to seize that from Trump. Uh, and I'm sure what we'll see tomorrow night on CNN, uh, he'll be very pugilistic. He has, of course, he never, ever, ever apologizes for anything. Um, and he'll just attack the news media and, and say this is all one big plot to basically silence his voice and silence the voices of, of, of MAGA. So, so I, I do think, yes, I mean, it's hard to believe Donald Trump would do better with women voters in 2024 mm -hmm. than he did in 2020. Um, where the state of the economy is going to play a part now, but there's no question, Joy, that this is another anchor kind of around his political, uh, you know, political ship. Yeah, it, it is. It is shameful, I think, that the only thing that Cornyn, Senator Cornyn could come up with is that he's unelectable. At some point, the party supposedly of family values ought to care that he seems to have sexually assaulted a woman uh, in a public space um, and walked away from it. And maybe 25 other women were his victims as well. That ought to matter to someone. Uh, David Pluff, Doug Brinkley, thank you both very much. Up next, we're learning more about the white nationalism of the Texas mall gunman, and more importantly, about the victims of his horrific crime. We'll bring you the very latest after this. The big question that we're dealing with right now is what's his motive? Why did he do this? Well, the big question is we don't know. We do know that he had neo-Nazi ideation. He had patches, he had tattoos, uh, even his signature, you know, verified that. That's one thing we do know. 
New details emerged today about the Texas mall gunman who fatally shot eight people, including three children. The neo-Nazi ideation, well, that came as no surprise. NBC News reports the shooter maintained a profile on a Russian social network social networking platform and ranted against Jewish people, women, and racial minorities. He also posted photos of a flak vest emblazoned with patches, one of them with the initials for Right Wing Death Squad, a popular meme among far-right extremist groups. Another post included a series of shirtless pictures with visible white power tattoos, including a swastika. And yet, not even Swastika Inc. can convince some conservatives that the shooter held far-right views, with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting racist bile such as, quote, only dumb white people would believe that a Mexican gang member is killing people for white supremacy, unquote. The shooter has no criminal history. But facts don't matter when labeling brown people carte blanche as gangbangers or undocumented or drug dealers. Of course, we know about the shooter's hodgepodge of hate, but a big question remains. Did he choose this target deliberately? The way other shooters, even very recently, targeted certain groups in their death sprees. We don't know if there is a racialized motive here, and we may never know. But what we do know is that Allen, Texas is among the Dallas-Fort Worth area's most diverse suburbs. Per the census, it has a fast-growing Asian-American population as well. The shooter didn't pick Dallas, where he's from. He chose Allen, about 25 miles north of downtown Dallas. Let's look at the victims again, at those who died. Let's think about the six-year-old survivor who lost his parents and his little brother and whose life will never be the same again. Let's think about who lives in this city who shops at this mall, and that at least half of those killed were Asian-American. Let's think, too, about how the gunman deliberately targeted this mall, posting more than two dozen photos of it, as well as surrounding areas, including screenshots of Google location information, seemingly monitoring the mall at its busiest times. These massacres are often random, but then they also aren't. And rather than considering, as a nation, what a person with hateful views and unfettered access to weapons is capable of, we're pretending that a person with a literal swastika tattoo, a literal swastika tattoo, cannot be a white supremacist. We'll be right back. That is tonight's readout. Thanks for watching.